0: Such a sweet, sweet guy was he And her tears flowed like wine Yes, her tears flowed like wine She's a real sad tomato This is a story She's about being unhappy. No I'm telling it to you, aware of the fact that I'm exploiting my own experience and foregrounding my mental health in a way that will make it seem as if I think it matters. Maybe that I think it matters more than your experience, or my friend's experiences, or those of someone who ended up on the news. You know this is only a story. I'm telling it to you because the whole thing was really lonely. She was a sob sob sister sob, sob sister Lying on a pillow Weeping like a willow My oh my how that baby could cry I've been told I was a happy baby who laughed a lot. I was a happy enough kid, even a happy-ish teenager. I was listening to a lot of Smiths and an almost constant stream of Tori Amos, but I was pretty much always deeply enjoying my misery. Then in my early twenties, things started to go wrong in ways that suggested what could go wrong very likely would go wrong I started to believe in the going wrong, and to expect it, and try to prepare for it. I can still remember getting on the phone to my boyfriend in mid 2005, crying halfway to uni, telling him I couldn't remember whether I'd left the stove on or not. He told me I hadn't. He also suggested, very gently, that I should probably look into making an appointment with the uni counsellor. He sounded tired. Hello, Marlo. Glad you came. Never been here before, have you? Well, it's the first time. I wouldn't be here now if you hadn't told me over the phone I could come up here if I needed help. I saw the uni counsellor, then a couple of psychologists. I started meditating, started to understand that if I didn't exercise regularly or eat properly, if I drank too much or put too much on my plate, I was liable to go off the rails pretty quickly. I still deeply believed in the going wrong. Yeah but mostly I could maintain. As long as I ticked all the self-care stuff off the list and I didn't push myself, I could basically maintain. I wasn't happy. In fact, a lot of the time I was pretty sad, but it felt manageable. My one rule was, no matter what, I never wanted to go on medication. The reasons for this were vague and poorly articulated. It was a case of something, something, My brain's already fucked enough as it is. By the end of 2020, whatever maintenance I could manage was no longer even close to working. If you're listening to this, you've also lived through the last few years. So you also know that things were bad and then they got worse. The first night we were properly allowed out, mid-November that year, I got blackout drunk, said heinous things to one of my dearest friends. That was a Friday. After that, I went all the way to the point where you stare at the void and wonder, how bad could it really be? Hospitalization was discussed. Within two weeks, I was on medication. The day after the bad, drunk, screaming night, Saturday morning. I drove out of Melbourne to the place I'd booked myself a few weeks earlier. The plan had been that I would go away for a while, relax, center myself after a horrible year. I arrived catastrophically hungover with two poetry books, Mary Carr's Tropic of Squalor and The New Best of Jane Kenyon. Of course, what I'd chosen to do to feel better with my insane mind was also totally insane. I'd rented this huge country house with nothing around it, where I was going to stay by myself for nearly a week. And do what? Supposedly read and write. I was lonely the minute I got there. There was almost no reception, so anyone I called could barely hear me. At night, I was terrified. There was no one around. The tap in the bathroom wouldn't stop dripping. I don't think I slept more than two hours at a time for the next four days. In the daylight, the place was so beautiful. Birds, trees, sky. I could barely look at it. Then it would get dark and the tap would keep dripping and I'd lie in bed and stare into the dark and check my half-working phone. Eventually I picked up the merry car. So I really can't explain why I would have brought this book with me because I hated this book. I thought I hated these poems. And particularly hated the fact that Mary Carr has two poems in this book about David Foster Wallace, who she dated in, like, the 80s or something. (laughs) It just seemed really milking it, you know? So I didn't... I don't know why I brought it with me. It's totally weird. Um, But it was very useful at the time. And, yeah, I really... I read this poem over and over again. It's called Wisdom, the Voice of God. It's, you know, like this episode, just deeply earnest. Um, It goes like this. 90% of what's wrong with you could be cured with a hot bath, says God through the manhole covers. But you want magic. To win the lottery you never bought a ticket for. Tenderly, the monks chant, embrace the suffering. The voice never panders, offers no five-year plan, no long-term solution, no edicts, from a cloudy white beard hooked over ears. It is small and fond and local. Don't look for your initials in the geese honking overhead, or to see through the glass even darkly. It says the most obvious shit, i.e. put down that gun. You need a sandwich. Do you think she's having a go at Mary Oliver with the geese thing? I think she Mary knew something I was trying at that point to understand for the first time, that I couldn't think my way out of this anymore. I tried the hot bath, but the water at the country house never got above about 30 degrees. I got out, freezing, and got back into bed. I continued to not sleep. I continued to check my half-working phone. The thing is, you fall off the edge pretty quickly when you're not sleeping. One of the memories that makes me shudder from this little trip is that I drove myself all the way back to Melbourne, totally delirious with sleep deprivation. I couldn't sleep at home either. I've always had bad nights my whole life, but I'd never had a whole bad week, turning into two, following a bad month after a bad year. The other book I had at the house was The New Best of Jane Kenyon, selected by Donald Hall. I kind of hated that as an idea. I hated a best of, I hated it being selected by Donald, which is ludicrous, because who better than the poet who lived and wrote with Jane all her life? Anyway, it annoyed me, but I bought the book. Kenyon's not quite Mary Oliver, by which I mean there is a quote from O Magazine on the back of this book, but I think readers who bought it off the strength of that would be disappointed. Jane's poems are sometimes straightforwardly beautiful, but more often than not, she's strange and jagged. She's likely to swerve away from any opportunity to be neat or conclusive. I still think Donald's is the most boring selected anyone could have come up with. It's all the neatest poems, all the most obvious choices. It was really good to talk to Matthew the other day about blurbs. And he said a blurb on the back of a US poetry collection is very often a paragraph-shaped smear. And this um, O Magazine quote from... A guy called Mark Doty, I don't know who that is, Uh, is very much that. It says, readers couldn't choose a more trustworthy companion to the life of feeling than Jane Kenyon's poetry. Every page of Jane Kenyon's offers a pleasure, clarity, gentle humour, calm and acute observation, and a movingly rendered struggle to understand the life she sees before her. Mark, I don't think you read the book, like... That makes it sound like these poems are going to give you an answer or that it's like a self-help book or something I don't know I just ah oh, I hate it because I feel like Jane would hate that I really think she would I don't know We'll see what you think I'm gonna read the poem kind of like the centerpiece of the book here it's one of her most well-known I probably have talked about it on here before because I talk about Kenyan too often. Uh, it's in it's in nine parts it is long so I'll probably digress a little bit as we go through. It's called Having It Out With Melancholy and it's got a really cool epigraph from Chekhov that says if many remedies are prescribed for an illness you may be certain that the illness has no cure. One from the nursery. When I was born, you waited behind a pile of linen in the nursery, and when we were alone you lay down on top of me, pressing the bile of desolation into every pore. And from that day on, everything under the sun and moon made me sad, even the yellow wooden beads that slid and spun along a spindle on my crib. You taught me to exist without gratitude. You ruined my manners toward God. Where he is simply to wait for death, the pleasures of earth are overrated. I only appeared to belong to my mother, to live among blocks and cotton undershirts with snaps. Among red-tin lunchboxes and report cards in ugly brown slipcases, I was already yours, the anti-urge, the mutilator of souls. How you going, O Magazine? please cuddle up. Don't be blue. While at the house, not really eating and not really sleeping, checking my half working phone, I wrote to the poet Antonia Pont. I said, These last few weeks, I've been losing my ability to cope at a particularly fast rate. I've been honest with my partner in ways that have led to huge breakup level fights. My meditation practice has dropped off to almost nothing. I've given up on daily walks. I've had a feeling of needing to be chained to the desk along with a bone-deep exhaustion that sent me to bed before dark. I've been forgetting things and making weird mistakes. The people around me have also seemed more nuts than usual. Old family horrors have resurfaced, and people I barely know have messaged me needing someone to talk to. All this soundtracked by the grinding at the construction site two doors down. I still thought at this point that I was going to yoga and meditate my way out of whatever it was that was going on with me. I didn't know I'd be at the after-hours clinic within the next three days, leaving with two rows of Valium, then two more doctors, more medication, finally sleep, then too much of it, and an inability to properly wake up until the late afternoon. Another poem that finally clicked, then, was Lowell's Waking in the Blue. Not so much the locked razor, more just the title itself. Now I was sleeping almost as soon as I lay down and waking up so, so late. This was the part I'd been told I'd feel worse before I felt better. I was so angry. I didn't know who with. Now that I'm looking at this lol poem again, I'm like, I don't know, it it seems really overbaked, actually. It's kind of funny, I guess, but I think really the thing that worked for me last year was just a couple of lines. So the first stanza goes like this. It says, The night attendant, a BU sophomore, rouses from the mare's nest of his drowsy head, propped on the meaning of meaning. He catwalks down our corridor. Azure day makes my agonised blue window bleaker. Crows maunder on the petrified fairway. Absence, my heart grows tense as though a harpoon was sparring for the kill. This is a house for the mentally ill. I just liked that Azure Day thing. I thought that was pretty great. But I think this poem is kind of too clever by half, actually, now that I look at it again. Lowell thinks he's really funny. And I mean, he kind of, yes, he's, he's funny, all right? He's funny, but he's not that funny. I was writing to Antonia because of what she'd written a few years prior. In her piece, Anatomy of a Trigger, she's not talking there about PTSD, anger or disapproval, she says, but what she calls the mundane trigger, a subspecies of triggering that doesn't let us off the hook and doesn't make us special. Antonia writes, this mundane trigger is a double-barreled beast, involving an initiating factor or constellation of factors, followed by a process. The latter might reveal itself as an atmosphere if it doesn't escalate to tangible behavior and it tends to unfold over variable lengths of time. A triggering plus a happening. After a triggering happens, we enter a period of triggeredness being triggered for a certain while. Something aligns and then something starts to run, a program, like flicking the first domino and relishing the tight tasty concatenation of symmetry and predictability, our mundane triggerings are never new, they're not passages of creativity or choice, they involve zero invention, often they're sinewy and full of decrepit, resentful force, they just won't die, they haunt us, but tediously and destructively, nothing is alluring as Patrick Swayze in Ghost, and it's they who turn us into clay of pliable consistency. We are, when triggered, a very delicate combination of achingly vulnerable and totally off our trolleys, raw, insufferable, diabolical. Baby, baby you know dear, that I'm in love with you, every cloud Almost everyone I know is on medication, or has been. Almost no one I know sleeps well, or eats properly, or drinks within the range a GP might recommend. I don't think I happen to know a uniquely sick subsection of the population either. I think all this is pretty normal. So normal it mostly passes without comment. Whenever I told anyone I would made the decision, such as it was, to go on medication, the reaction I got was somewhere between good luck and shrug. So I do feel stupid telling you all this. 2. Bottles Elevil, Luteamil, Doxapin, Norpramin, Prozac, Lithium, Xanax, Welbutrin, Parnate, Nardil, Zoloft. The coated ones smell sweet or have no smell. The powdery ones smell like the chemistry lab at school that made me hold my breath. 3. Suggestion from a friend You wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. I love that she got to publish that. 4. Often Often I go to bed as soon after dinner as seems adult. I mean, I try to wait for dark in order to push away from the massive pain in sleep's frail wicker coracle. 5. Once there was light Once, in my early thirties, I saw that I was a speck of light in the great river of light that undulates through time. I was floating with the whole human family, we were all colours. Those who are living now, those who have died, those who are not yet born. For a few moments I floated, completely calm, and I no longer hated having to exist. Like a crow who smells hot blood, you came flying to pull me out of the glowing stream. I'll hold you up, I never let my dear ones drown. After that, I wept for days. I don't really know how to end this. I didn't kill anyone driving home, thank God. When I got there, the bathwater ran at a standard temperature, and there was someone there who was willing to come to the after-hours clinic with me and sit with me through the grind of getting used to the meds and sleeping too much and feeling like I'd failed. He was still tired, I think, but these days he also looked a little bit scared. 6. In and Out The dog searches until he finds me upstairs, lies down with a clatter of elbows, puts his head on my foot. Sometimes the sound of his breathing saves my life, in and out, in and out, a pause, a long sigh. This is my favourite one. Seven, pardon. A piece of burned meat wears my clothes, speaks in my voice, dispatches obligations haltingly or not at all, is tired of trying to be stout-hearted, tired beyond measure. We move on to the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Day and night, I feel as if I had drunk six cups of coffee, but the pain stops abruptly. With the wonder and bitterness of someone pardoned for a crime she did not commit, I come back to marriage and friends, to pink-fringed hollyhocks. Come back to my desk, books, and chair. 8. Credo Pharmaceutical wonders are at work, but I believe only in this moment of well-being. Unholy ghost, you are certain to come again coarse, mean, you'll put your feet on the coffee table, lean back, and turn me into someone who can't take the trouble to speak, someone who can't sleep, or who does nothing but sleep, can't read or call for an appointment for help. There is nothing I can do against your coming. When I awake, I am still with thee. That one really gets me too, because it's like she's doing everything right. She's trying literally everything. And nothing is working. Nine. Wood thrush. High on Nardil and June light, I wake at four, waiting greedily for the first notes of the wood thrush. Easeful air presses through the screen with the wild, complex song of the bird, and I am overcome by ordinary contentment. What hurt me so terribly all my life until this moment? How I love the small, swiftly beating heart of the bird singing in the great maples its bright, unequivocal eye. Someone said to me a little while ago that they thought that at the end of the poem, Kenyon knows that she's going to die and that that is like a moment of her accepting what's going on. But I don't think that's it at all. I think that she, at that point, I don't think she had any idea that she was sick and think it's just a reprieve like the whole poem's just a circle she's going to go back to the start and start again sorry about that oprah magazine i keep stalling at this point the notes i was taking last year for this trail off I'll sit down to write more but there'll be a message to reply to, or someone will come into the room, or whatever I have on the stove will be ready. I've been avoiding writing the end because there's nothing in it. The honest end to this is that things did change but the changes were too minor even to write down. Eventually things felt different, a lot of small things changed very gradually in ways that felt totally insignificant that day or that week. It was Christmas, then it was January, then eventually I felt steady enough to taper back down off the meds. Everything changed enough that what took me down couldn't hook me anymore. The best I can probably do is to say that I let go, but what exactly I let go of and how, I could try to tell you that, but giving it a shape would make it a lie. I know things will continue to go wrong. I also know I'll be okay. And I can tell you that when it was bad, the only place I felt a tiny bit better, however long that lasted, was inside a poem.